Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Dave Ansell. Hi, Dave. Hi there. Now, this week, perfect for summer, how scientists have come up with electric sunglasses that let you change how dark they are. Sounds good. Also, how birds are avoiding radioactive nesting sites in Chernobyl. Sounds even better. And also, how scientists have invented a near-perfect anti-reflective coating. Find out how it works in just a moment. Also this week, we're exploring the science of heart disease with Dr Neil Campbell from the London Chest Hospital. He'll be joining us to explain what happens when someone has a heart attack and some of the new methods that medicine has to prevent and treat this problem. Plus, we'll be hearing from heart specialist Anthony Mather on how stem cells could be used to repair damaged hearts. And in kitchen science, Ben Vasler will be with Brian Callingham to find out how arteries respond to adrenaline and other drugs. And if you're in the mood to win something, and this will certainly be an adrenalising experience, we've got a fabulous mud-powered clock for the winner of this week's teaser. What we want to know, to the nearest million or so, is how many times does the average human heart beat in a lifetime? The Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. How about this for summer, Dave? A pair of sunglasses where you can actually change how dark they are. It would be useful, I could... Because yeah, most people say, well, why do you need that? Because we've already got these, these sunglasses that sort of auto-tint and you wander out in the sun and this photochemical reaction takes place in the lens and it makes the glass go darker in response to the light energy hitting the glass. And the consequence of that is that you get nice, nice tinting. Well, it's a bit of a problem, actually, when the light level changes very, very abruptly, for instance, when you go into a building or when the sun goes behind a cloud or sometimes they're just a bit too dark for what you want to do. And a couple of scientists from Washington State University in Seattle, they're called Chow Ma and Chun Yi Zhu, have presented this uh, work at the American Chemical Society meeting in Chicago this week. What they've done is to come up with a set of glasses where you can dial up the darkness. Pretty cunning. They've got this polymer, which is called PPro.me2, and it's an electro-responsive polymer, which you, you sandwich into the lenses, and you have a little dial on the side of the glasses, and when you twist it, it, it turns how dark they are, so you can turn the darkness up and down, and it only uses power when you change it. So, in other words, you don't need a pair of batteries running this thing all the time. It's very energy efficient. So this means that if you just happen to feel like you want to be able to see the world better, you can just dial that dial and it'll work? Well, it means that you get a bit of a sort of tinting in a hurry rather than having to wait for the glasses to react more, well, at their own pace. And that might be too slow for the conditions. Say you're driving or something, you go into a tunnel and you Mm -hmm. suddenly want to, you don't want to be distracted by taking your glasses off. You can very quickly dial them a bit lighter so you can see. Very neat. Now, birds in Chernobyl seem to have learnt how to avoid radioactive nests. Anders Moller um, from the Marie Curie University in Paris and Tim Mosso from South Carolina have been studying the birds around Chernobyl. Now, the radiation, Chernobyl's really reactive, radioactive ever since the um, nuclear reactor there blew up in about 1986, I think. Um, and, but the radiation in the forest nearby, in the Red Forest, is very patchy. Some areas are really radioactive and other areas are almost not, are much more normal. 
Um, so what they did was they t- put up loads of nest, nest boxes all over the place, um, for, but the ideal for great tits or pied flycatchers. Um, and they've looked at which of these have been used by the birds. Now, um, both birds, but particularly the pied flycatcher, seem to avoid the radioactive areas. Um, the, in fact, the pied flycatcher only seemed to nest in the really, really kind of quiet radioactively areas, not at all contaminated areas. Is it that, or is it just that the birds that did nest there died? Um, I don't know. Well, I guess they'd have found the, the sort of dead birds in the <laughs> and the remains of their nests. They didn't find any nests in the normal ones. Um, although they have no idea how on earth the birds are detecting it, because like you don't really have a sense of radiation. Well, perhaps it's a food thing that we you know we know these birds have to eat. They have to eat certain things in the environment, and if the environment has been changed by the radioactivity, perhaps their natural food is no longer there in enough abundance, so the birds naturally avoid it because there's nothing to eat. It, yeah, it could be something to do that. Um, maybe if animals have got ways of working out where the radioactive air, stuff in there, this could be quite some of the reason why the area around Chernobyl is actually doing, the wildlife is doing really, really well, because it seems that loads of radioactivity is less bad for wildlife than farming. Well, this is absolutely true, but then, um, I mean, a major problem is that the radioactivity could genetically harm some of these plants, and we know that there are trees with pretty big leaves and things down there, aren't there? There's some pretty weird species have originated because the radioactivity has mutated some of these, these organisms. So although you're getting a large species diversity, what are the actual consequences for it, genetically speaking? Are these animals normal? Do they have a normal lifespan? That kind of thing. Does anyone know? Um, there has been studies into it, but I haven't looked into it recently. <laughs> I think there are some humans living there, and they haven't died of cancer yet, but I think um, if you look at areas where people have been exposed to long-term, very very radioactively contaminated areas, then there's a big increase in cancer risk and and other disorders. I can believe it. Well, here's an interesting thing, because there's a group of researchers who are based in Austria, and they have worked out how pheromones work. You could say what they've they've been attracted by fly pheromones in their research, but the way this works, they've been studying these things called drosophila these are fruit flies and the males of these species make a certain chemical it's called cva which is uh, stands for 11 cis vacinal acetate and the male flies ooze this chemical and it puts off other male flies it stops them wanting to mate but it makes other females get very frisky what the researchers have been able to do is to work out exactly how it works and it turns out that the fruit flies have a, a single docking station a receptor which is on their antennae and this chemical comes along locks on to this docking station and activates the nerve fibre and then depending upon whether they're a male or a female fly obviously their brain responds differently by making them either want to mate or not want to mate. Now you might say well this is a bit gratuitous why do we need to know this in flies? Well the answer is that once you've tracked it down in one insect lots of insects all use very similar systems so you can work out how other insects will work too and there are lots of insects that are real pests like mosquitoes they spread diseases and there are also insects that devastate crops So once you've got a way of managing to sort of put animals off of mating, it could be a really clear and simple way without having to resort to harmful pesticides that kill bugs and and other things that are not nasty for the environment or not nasty for your crop. You could selectively block the mating pathways in just these particular problem insects and this could solve your problem. And this means that then you could stop diseases spreading or crops getting devastated. But wouldn't within a few generations you evolve a set of flies which could, would just uh, attempt to mate with anything which looked a bit like a fly and they'd do a lot better than the ones? Well, what you're doing is just locally in the area where your crops are or where the human habitations are, you're reducing the likelihood that they're going to grow or mate as effectively. And all you need is a slight reduction in the efficiency. 
and this would reduce the, num- the overall numbers and this should cut down how, how your crops fare or also how your humans fare if it's, say, mosquitoes. So I think it's very interesting because you could, make, you could use this to lure animals into, into traps and things because they're literally following their insect noses thinking they're going to get some sex and they don't. Indeed. Um, now, t- you're talking about glasses earlier. Now, physicists have come up with an almost perfect anti-reflecting coating. If you're making a camera or a telescope or a microscope, you don't want light being wasted by reflections because it doesn't get to your eyepiece and you can't see what you're looking at as well. Now, traditionally, there's a way of doing this. What you do is you add a very thin layer of coating of a different material on the top and you get two reflections. And if you get it right, those two reflections cancel each other out, which is great, and you get no reflection. The problem is it will only work for one colour of light. Um, Normally, they tune it to work for green lights, so um, the red and the blue don't get reflected. Why green? Well, green is in the centre of the spectrum, so um, it gives you the best coverage of all different colours and works best. So is that why when I look at a lens of, say, binoculars, glasses, camera, it looks purple? Yeah, the expensive ones have got this coating on, and it looks because the blue and the red get reflected, so they look purple. So the green goes, and red plus blue equals purple? Yeah, that's the idea. So that's bad, because any light that's being lost or reflected from a lens means that it's not going onto the film or onto the, the chip in the camera to get the best picture. So you don't want that. Yeah, and especially if you're in the military, you get reflections off your binoculars and the enemy can see where you are, which is a really bad thing. Oh, right. So how can they get around it? Well, Fred Schubert in Ren, Rens, Renslayer Polytechnic in New York has come up with a different approach. Now, reflections happen when um, the refractive index of um, a material changes quickly. So you go from air to glass, you get a big change very quickly. Well, like air, air water. Or air and water. And you get or, reflection off the surface of the water, for example. Yeah. So it's a big change in refractive index very mm. quickly. Um, but if you can change refractive index very gently, you don't get any reflections. The problem is getting something with properties al- with refractive index almost like glass in a solid, which no one's managed to come up with before. Now, Fred's come up a way of depositing very, very tiny silica nanorods at an angle, um, which is mostly air, so the properties are mostly like air. And then he can tune the properties very slowly with lots of different layers um, by why, changing the angle. Why are they mostly air? Well, because you only have the, a few hairs. It's a bit like having a few hairs around the place. So most of the stuff there is air, so the properties are mostly like air. And you can tune the properties by changing the angle of them in different layers. So you can go smoothly from air refractive index to glass refractive index, at which point you get virtually no reflection at all, and all the light goes through and you get a much brighter picture. How easy is this to, to do? I mean, it's, it's all working very nicely in a lab, I presume, but is this going to be viable for glasses, cameras, binoculars? I mean, I would guess it's probably not going to be very good for external surfaces because it's not going to, um, it's going to be a bit easy to damage. But inside, the, there's still lots of layers of glass, pieces of glass in a um, camera system, so it would be very useful for all the internal ones, I'd have thought. Uh, what about things like photovoltaic cells, solar cells? Obviously, you want to gather as much energy in as you can and reflect the least. Could it be used for that? Yeah, and I've, people have been talking about if you cover the solar cells with that, then you don't lose 10 or 20% of the light just reflected and you get more power out of your solar cell. Thanks, Dave. It's The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Dave. We're talking this week about the science of heart disease and the new options that medicine has for sufferers of heart disease. We'll be joined later by Dr Neil Campbell, who's a cardiologist. He's working at the London Chest Hospital and he's going to talk to us about some of the causes and consequences of heart disease and some of the things we can actually do about it. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. Now, Chris, here we've got a good question for you from Manuel Navarro Lux, who sent us a very beautiful picture himself, which is slightly worrying, but anyway. uh, What's he like, you, Dave? (laughs) 
<laughs> anyway, I, I will ignore this whole thing. Um, now, his question is, do identical twins have identical DNA? If so, should, do they have identical p- fingerprints? If they don't, how can they speak? Because DNA is supposed to be the code which determines your makeup, your hair colour, the height and everything. So what's going on? OK, Manu. Well, the answer is that identical twins do have identical DNA. And the way in which they form is that when you're a fertilised egg inside your mother, so one sperm is joined with one egg and the egg is growing then what happens is for some reason that what's now an embryo splits into two and it develops independently as two separate developing embryos. But because they both originated with the same genetic material, they both have to be genetically identical. They're nature's clones and they do happen quite naturally in humans and in some animals. In fact, in the nine-banded armadillo, you will find that it naturally produces quads. It takes its embryo and causes it to split into four and produces four genetically identical offspring. And so it's exactly the same technique. So they are genetically identical, but fingerprints differ amongst identical twins. It's the one thing that isn't identical. And the reason for that is that fingerprints are a a developmental random process. So when cells are migrating in the body... There are codes and and messages, chemicals, that tell them where to go in the body to put the body together in a gross sort of way. But then when the cells get to their final destination, it's much more random how they arrange themselves, and fingerprints are a consequence of this arrangement. So you will see a very individual picture to a person's fingerprints, but of course their genetic fingerprint is going to be the same. So your DNA doesn't tell you exactly how to build you. It's a bit like giving a builder instructions on how to build a wall. It doesn't tell you exactly where to put all the bricks. Yeah, well, it does tell you pretty much where to put the bricks, but it doesn't say you have to glue them down in the following order. It says, here's all the bricks, this is vaguely where they should be. And it means that if you want to introduce a bit of artistic licence, you can. So, for instance, when your brain is putting itself together, everyone says, well, if I have a pet dog and I cloned it because um, I love my pet very much, it's now died, I want it back again, I'll clone it. What you get is a pet that's genetically identical to your dog, but it doesn't have the lifetime's worth of experiences and the training that your dog did. And, and the training is, is moulding and shaping the brain according to the experiences you have. And it's the same with you learning a language, for example. You wouldn't expect to have a baby and it be able to speak because you could. It's genetically very, very similar to you, but it needs to learn. And so you have this rough model, it's like a bowl of dough, and you've got to press it into shape. And that's essentially what's happening with your body. The, the DNA says, put these cells in the following places, but then there are subsequent more random processes that organise them into their final resting places. And because it's random, you can't say they're ever going to look identical. Cool. But at bigger scales, so things like your facial features and your hair colour, that that obviously is down at the kind of tiny cell level, it's one thing, but when it's at the bigger scale, then then things do look the same. Brilliant. Now I've got a question from from John in Suffolk, Dave. He says, great programme, but can I ask you about microwaves? If you put your home phone number into a mobile phone, press enter... Shove it in a microwave, shut the door, make a connection, and then success, it will successfully ring your home phone. The oven's supposed to protect you from the microwaves inside, so how do they get out and make the telephone call? This is a worry. Well, there's two things going on. I have tried this at, um, in fact, my girlfriend's house, and it did actually cut, um, cut out the phone connection. Um, so obviously the microwave does keep some of the um, phone connect- the microwaves coming out of the phone. The microwave oven keeps some of the microwaves out of the phone inside the microwave. But the frequency of the microwave from the phone isn't the same as the frequency of the microwave you'd use from, for cooking with. If it was, then whenever you turn the microwave on, you wouldn't be able to talk. It would interfere horribly and it would be a nightmare. And in fact, some of the places where they hold the doors on, so where the door's shut, there's actually a gap. But, that, but no microwaves actually get out of that because it's tuned to be exactly, I think, a quarter of the wavelength of the microwaves. 
and this means that it sort of cancels itself out and the microwave can't travel along it so it can't get out. But with your phone, it's working at a slightly different frequency, so this won't work anymore. And so some microwaves will get out. So it will cut down the microwaves coming out of it a lot, and then the phone will, adjust, will turn up its power to make that work. But it won't cut it all out because it's the wrong frequency. I've got a sort of spin-off of this, and it's, it's also from John. He says, um, I've been told that a scald from water that's been recently boiled in a microwave can be worse than water that's just boiled in a kettle. Is this true? Yeah, it is true. Um, because if you heat water very, very, if you have a very clean container and you heat water very gently, um, you can actually get it to be above 100 degrees centigrade. You can be up to 105, 106 degrees centigrade. Um, and if you put in some sugar or something, it then would then boil, which is dangerous in itself because it could bl- explode all over you. Lots of people have been badly scalded by putting spoons into things they've heated up in the microwave. Um, and so if it's 105 degrees centigrade, there's more heat there, so it will do you more damage more quickly. Um, I've got a question here for you, Chris. It's um, from Te- Thomas Pearson um, from Sweden, it looks like. Thanks for a wonderful show. I'm a graduate student at university uh, in Stockholm. Um, and he listens to our show when tending his bacteria, which is rather nice. Um, he wants, he's wondering why butter is so hard to spread on newly baked or oven bread, whereas peanut butter is so easy. Butter tends to form clumps or peanut butter spreads out just as it would with um, cold, cold bread. I think this is highly relevant to our sort of topic this week on fats and that kind of thing because peanut butter is rich in vegetable oil and that means it's got unsaturated fats in it. And if you were to have a very powerful microscope that could show you what a molecule of fat looks like, an unsaturated fat has got in some places between the carbon-carbon linkages because fat's lots of hydrocarbon, lots of carbon atoms stuck together. It's got what's called a double bond and these are kinky. They bend, and this causes the chain to be bendy. And because the chain is bent, it introduces a funny shape in the molecule. So if you've tried sort of packing lots of marbles in a jar, you can't pack very many. There's always going to be gaps. So what this does is it makes the molecules not stack together very closely. And so because they're far more spread out, it means that the, the butter, the peanut butter, is much less dense. And this means it spreads more easily at whatever temperature you try and spread it at than something which contains much more saturated fat, in other words, animal fat, where you only have these single bonds between the carbon atoms, and these stack together much more closely, so it's very, very dense, and so I think probably he's trying to spread butter, which is at a a lower temperature, or maybe it's at the same temperature as the peanut butter, but because it's denser, it's therefore harder to spread than the peanut butter, and this means it forms globules and sticks to itself, rather than wanting to spread out cleanly and evenly on the bread. What do you think? So basically it's thicker. The other thing which it might be is if the bread's just out of the oven, it's still going to be warm, and I think the melting point of um, unsaturated fats is lower than saturated fats. So you could find that when you put the peanut butter on it, it actually gets thinner as well because it's warming up. So it gets runnier, so it's much easier to spread. It's getting runnier quicker. And it's probably runnier to start with. Good effort. Mr Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Dave, we're talking this week about the science of heart disease and heart attacks and how stem cells can be used to sort out your heart if it's been damaged by a heart attack. We've also got a teaser running, which... uh, Dave, remind everybody, they've got a mud-powered clock up for grabs. This has been donated by Noisemakers. They're a group of scientists that like to make a noise about science. There's more on the web from them at noisemakers.org.uk. How many times does a human heart beat in a lifetime, which which you want to know to a few million? Now it's time to cross the Atlantic and catch up with Bob and Chelsea for this week's science update to find out, amongst other things, about how computers could be deciding whether in future you live or die. This week for The Naked Scientists, we're going to talk about puberty and death. 
I'm going to talk about why seemingly trivial problems can send teens into rage or depression. But first, Chelsea's going to tell us why a computer may someday make some of your toughest decisions for you. Computers could someday make end-of-life decisions for people who can't communicate and haven't left any record of their wishes. Bioethicist David Wendler of the National Institutes of Health says the program predicts what medical care people would want based on the preferences of similar people. Even with just a little data, the program guesses with the same accuracy as family members, just about 70 percent. Wendler says more data could up that to 90 percent. Basically what our findings show is that I can do a better job at predicting your end-of-life treatment preferences by looking at the preferences of people who are like you in similar ways, age, gender, race, religion, etc., than I can by asking your wife that you've been married to for 40 years. Why that is and how that wife would feel about letting a computer decide her husband's fate still aren't known. Thanks, Chelsea. Teenagers are known for extreme mood swings generally blamed on hormones. Now scientists may have figured out why. Neuropharmacologist Cheryl Smith at the State University of New York Downstate Medical Center explains that during stress, the body releases a chemical called THP that causes a tranquilizing effect on nerve cells in the brain's emotion center. So it will allow you to adapt a bit to stress, to, to not feel as freaked out and calm down a little bit and be able to handle the stress. But in young mice, she found that hormones during puberty alter these brain cells. So when THP reaches them, instead of triggering a calming effect, they trigger extreme anxiety. If the mouse model holds true for people, it's easy to see why stress that seems mild to adults could lead to extreme anxiety in young teens. Thanks, Bob. Next time, we'll bring you more stories from the land where overreaction is a way of life. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists. Thanks, Bob and Chelsea. More on the web from them if you'd like to catch up with what they get up to at scienceupdate.com. This is The Naked Scientists. It's Chris and Dave, and we're talking this week about the science of heart disease, and we'll be talking in a second with Dr Neil Campbell. Um, if you want to call in about our teaser question as well, you can do that, which is how many times does your heart beat in a normal lifetime with the nearest million or so? Colin and Norwich is pretty good, almost there. Pat in Essex, even better. Roy in Tenerife, bit high. Rowena in Essex, Looking pretty good. Pam and Chatteris and David and Finch are both pretty good, maybe a bit low. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. So, Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris and Dr. Dave, and we're talking this week about the science of heart disease and from the London Chest Hospital. Here's Neil Campbell. Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. I reckon heart disease, apart from killing one person in three of who will be <laughs> listening to this program, must be a very broad term. It must be one of the mis- most misused terms. What does it actually mean? It is a broad term, Chris. It covers a wide variety of different problems. People can either have problems with their heart arteries, they can have problems with the heart muscle, they can have problems with the electrical circuitry of the heart, and some of those patients will need pacemakers. And some of those problems can overlap. So, for example, a patient who develops problems in their heart arteries may develop a problem with the heart muscle or the electrical circuitry of the heart. Who gets it? Anyone can get it. Um, Some people, specifically in terms of people who have narrowings in the heart arteries, there are certain risk factors for that. People who smoke are more likely to get it. People who have diabetes, high blood pressure, or high level of fats in the blood can get it. Now, when we say you've got problems with your heart, what's actually provoking those problems? And why would those things that you just said actually lead to the the condition, why do they actually 
do nasty things? Essentially, going back to, to basics, the heart is a pump, which is a large muscle. It's the, the engine system of the heart. And the engine needs its own plumbing system, and those are called the coronary arteries. The coronary arteries um, can, if we live in a Western society, develop narrowings over time. And all of those factors which I mentioned can encourage narrowings to occur. If those narrowings become very severe, or if, for example, a clot develops in one of the heart arteries, then one of those arteries can become blocked. That area of muscle, which is supplied by that particular area of the plumbing system, the coronary artery, can become damaged, and that is what's known as a heart attack. What's actually going on in the artery to get that, that furring up, those plaques that are made of that fatty material? I think we're going to be hearing a little bit later about what the actual structure of, of an artery is. But essentially each artery has got three layers. It's got an inner layer, which is the layer which is closest to the blood. It's got a middle layer, which has got a muscle layer, and that allows the body to regulate the size of the artery, regulate the diameter size of the artery, and we can give particular drugs to change that size. And there's also an outer lining which connects the artery to the outer structures. When people, for example, if they smoke or if they have high levels of fats in their blood, pe those people are more likely for fatty deposits to build up on the inner lining of the artery, and that pre can predispose people to problems such as heart attacks. So why is it that it takes, say, 40 or 50 years before people start to see this manifest, and why does it tend to run in families? Even if you look um, at very, very young children, we can see, if we live in a country such as ours with our diet and our lifestyle, that the, um, the very basic building blocks of these fatty deposits are beginning to occur. Um, these things don't happen overnight, that narrowings occur over many years, and it's often only when people get into their 40s or their 50s that those narrowings will occur. There are some people uh, who... Um, who have family conditions who are more likely to develop heart disease and those people often have conditions where they have very high levels of fats within the blood. If you have high levels of fats within the blood more of those fatty deposits can build up and that makes heart disease more likely to occur. So is there anything we can actually do once these vessels become furred up in this way? There are medicines which can treat it. If someone is actually having a heart attack, and when someone is having a heart attack, the heart artery completely blocks, there are two main treatments which doctors can use. The first is um, clot-busting drugs, and we call that treatment thrombolysis, where very strong clot-busting drugs are given into somebody's vein to open up the clot. Newer treatments have been developed where what we can do is we can pass wires and tubes up from the top of someone's leg or from their wrist. We can pass those directly into someone's heart artery. We can do this when someone's awake. We can open up the heart artery, and then we can place a special little metal scaffold called a stent to keep the artery open. Why do you need that? Why can't you just squash the fat out of the way and done with it? Because when we pass wires and balloons down people's heart arteries, that does cause some local damage to the artery. And there is evidence that actually putting a stent in to keep the artery open will actually stop it furring up later. So what's the difference between that, Neil, and, and what people describe as a heart bypass? A heart bypass operation is essentially, um, if you imagine that the heart artery is a pipes, 
And if you imagine that you have a blockage, much in the same way that if you have a um, a road bypass, which is trying to to bypass a town where there's a lot of congestion, what a heart bypass does is it takes one of the person's own arteries or veins, connects it to the area before the blockage, and then connects it to the area after the blockage, bypassing the blockage. So it's not actually opening up the artery itself, it's bypassing the blockage, encouraging flow beyond the narrowing. So obviously this approach you were mentioning where you can thread something up from the leg is going to be a lot better than having to give someone a pretty serious operation. Certainly when someone is having a heart attack, uh, people who do heart bypass operations would say that it's preferable that someone has this procedure with a stent. However, some people will need heart bypass operations if they have heart attacks. And heart bypass operations are also done in patients who haven't had heart attacks, but there may be other very good reasons why they need it, such as they have severe narrowings in a lot of important arteries. So what about when the vessel gets so small? Because obviously as as you go further down an artery, it gets smaller and smaller. What about when you get to the point where the damage is beyond the reach with one of these techniques? Well, there is a range of very good uh, tablets which can be used to treat symptoms. And also there's a lot of new research, I think we're going to be hearing about that a little bit later, um, such as using stem cells to try and improve the heart function. And so when, when could, well, I suppose a very good question, which I think another term which is banded about and probably very poorly understood, is when someone's having a, a heart attack, what does that actually mean compared with, say, a cardiac arrest? I think that causes a lot of confusion for for many people. When someone is actually having a heart attack, that is actually when one of the heart arteries blocks off, and that results in an area of heart muscle actually dying. So the larger the area of muscle supplied by that artery, uh, um, the, the higher the damage, the higher the blockage, the more damage will occur to the heart muscle. A cardiac arrest is when the heart actually stops beating. There's a variety of things that can cause cardiac arrests. Heart attacks can cause cardiac arrests, but, for example, if someone were to develop a very large blood clot in their lung, that could also cause a cardiac arrest. If some of the heart dies in a heart attack, does it ever regrow, or is it just gone forever? At the moment, what we know is that the heart muscle doesn't actually... uh, It can't come back to life when it's died. But if the heart attack has been small or moderately sized, then the other areas of heart muscle which haven't actually been affected by the heart attack can take over the function of the damaged muscle and that can still allow the heart to work quite effectively. Tony is in Westcliff. He wants to know, um, is stress something that can provoke heart problems? All of us need some degree of stress in our lives. Um, we, the stress gives us motivation, it gives us some enthusiasm. So that if there are some people who, when they are feeling especially stressed, can have heart attacks, but it's likely that that heart attack would probably have occurred anyway. Um, stress on its own, if you do not have narrowings in your heart arteries, will not bring on a heart attack. And what are palpitations, Neil? Because Paula and Ely said, what actually causes a palpitation and are they something she should be worried about? She says she was once told the left side of her heart slightly bigger than the right and should that confirm her? Should that concern her? I would have thought that the left side of the heart's naturally bigger than the right because it's got to do more work. 
I can't talk specifically about her case. Generally, the left side of the heart is bigger than the right side of the heart. A palpitation is when someone is aware of their own heart beating. That's quite common. I'm often aware of my own heart beating, especially, for example, when I'm in bed going to sleep. Not everyone being aware of their own heart beating is necessarily abnormal. Some people sometimes are aware of um, occasionally themselves their heart missing a beat. S lots of things can cause palpitations, but the other times where it perhaps requires investigation is someone has palpitations or an awareness of their heart beating where they feel very unwell with it, or they have times where their heart beats and it can last for a long time, or their heart can go very quickly and they can feel very light-headed. So sometimes it can be normal, sometimes it can require further investigation. What actually controls the heart rate and how fast your heart beats at? Because it's, it's cleverly matched, isn't it? The, the more active you are, the faster your heart goes. The heart has a very, very well-designed electrical circuit system, which essentially has its own internal pacemaker, which beats very regularly, a little bit like a metronome. Now, that metronome will speed up if the heart needs to beat faster, for example, times of exercise, perhaps at times of stress, and it, the heart will beat slower when we're more relaxed, so when we're resting, when perhaps we're asleep at night. Um, and the heart has a very well-regulated metronome. However, there are some conditions where that metronome become, can become damaged or impaired, and we have systems where we can put a pacemaker in. A pacemaker is a, a small metal box which sits just underneath somebody's collarbone, feeds wires inside the heart, and that can take over the function of the heart's own pacemaker or metronome at times when it becomes impaired. And just as a last question before we go to our kitchen science this week, very exciting, we're going to introduce you to how blood vessels actually respond to things like adrenaline and other drugs in just a second. But Christine's in Newmarket and says, could a leaky heart valve be fatal? Is it a problem? There's a wide range of leakiness of different heart valves and quite often patients are told that by their doctors that they have leaky heart valves. A mild degree of leakiness of particular heart valves is not always necessarily sinister. But if someone has a very leaky heart valve, if left untreated, yes, that could be fatal. So it's certainly worth asking if you have been asked, told that you have a leaky heart valve, finding out how leaky it is and what needs to be done about it. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Mm -hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. Yes, it is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Dave. Hello to everyone listening to us on REMFM. Down there enjoying nice weather in the Mediterranean. Time now, though, to find out what actually happens when you add some drugs to the heart's own blood vessels, coronary arteries and things like that, because for this week's Kitchen Science, Ben Valsler is with Brian Callingham to find out how these drugs actually work. Here we go. Hello, thank you, Chris. I'm here in the Department of Pharmacology with Brian Cullingham. And what are you going to show us today, Brian? Well, I'd like to show you how arteries work. Work in what sense? Well, work in the way in which they respond to drugs in particular, both for good and for ill. And so how do arteries generally respond? Well, they respond by contracting or by relaxing. They have to control uh, the blood supply to the various organs and tissues of the body. And a good example really is in cold weather, you want the blood vessels in your skin to constrict so that you don't lose heat. And conversely, in the summer, you'd like them to uh, relax and dilate so that you can get rid of heat. 
Well, this equipment is quite scary looking. You might expect to see it in a mad scientist's lab. There's glass, there's tubes, there's bubbling, there's metal. What is it all for? Well, the vessels that you're looking at, called organ baths, are about three inches high and about three quarters of an inch in diameter and contain a nutrient solution. If you look closely here, you can find there's a small ring of a piece of, a, of a, the digital artery of the deer that we obtained from the abattoir. And we measure the tension uh, that it develops by putting a wire loop through the lumen of the, of the vessel, which is attached to a transducer. And this transducer measures the force developed by the little muscles in the wall uh, of the blood vessel. And then the signal is then passed on for recording via an amplifier and onto a computer. What I would like to show you is the effect of some chemicals that we can add to these segments of blood vessel in the organ bars. And one is the action of noradrenaline, which is the body's natural stress uh, hormone and involved in the responses of blood vessels when you've received a nasty fright or got angry and whatever. Brian is using a pipette to add a few drops. It really is only a tiny amount into the water bath. So looking at the laptop, the graphs at the moment all have flat lines. And what does that mean? Well, that's the resting tension of the arteries before the drug has taken Sorry, to, that's amazing. It's just shot up by at least three times the level it was on. What, what's happening here? Well, the drug is now having its effect and causing a very substantial contraction of the circular muscle of the artery. Is this the same thing that happens in our own arteries when it's cold? Oh, yes. What you're seeing here is intense uh, constriction of the arteries, which in us would, of course, reduce the blood flow and thus reduce heat loss. So what sort of pressures are you recording? What sort of force is that? Well, the, the force on these little muscles probably corresponds to about the weight of an AA battery dangling from this little tiny piece of vessel. So now that we've made them constrict, is there any way to open them up again? Oh, yes, there are several ways of, of doing that. And one way that I would like to show you now would be to use a, a drug that mimics the action of glycerol trinitrate, which you used, of course, for the relief of the terrible pain of angina when people have uh, uh, cardiovascular disease. So we'll go back to the organ bars now, and I, I will add a similar amount of, uh, of the drug to the organ bath, which I've had it now, and let's see what happens. Brian's added the other drugs, and we're still looking at the same graph, which is still very high, but already it's shooting down, and it really is dropping quite quickly, so this is obviously showing that the, the artery is opening up again and relaxing. Well, this has, this has caused the vessel to relax, which then, of course, would lead to it opening up again, and blood flow would then go back to normal. So how is that useful in the human body? The response you've just seen illustrates how these drugs would work in the, in the body uh, for the relief of the pain of angina. Because the problem with the pain of angina, the heart is deprived of oxygen, uh, very largely as a result of failure of the coronary blood supply, and the pain that it generates is, uh, is terrible. You want something that works very quickly, as we've seen here, and it works very largely by being taken through the blood supply where it interacts in the, the endothelium and to cause the release of nitric oxide. And this nitric oxide then stimulates the processes in the muscle to cause it to relax. As a result of that, you then decrease the work on the heart, it needs less oxygen, and the pain hopefully goes away. Well, thank you very much, Brian. There's no Kitchen Science next week because it's Easter, but we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more for you. From me and from Brian Callingham here at the Department of Pharmacology, back to you, Chris.
Thank you very much for that, Ben. Yes, as he says, there's no show next week because it's Easter. But then when we're back after Easter, we've got some really exciting kitchen sciences for you. So we'll try and tell you what they're going to be during the week so you can get the various bits and pieces together and try and do them at home. Meanwhile, it is The Naked Scientist with me, Dr Chris, and with Dr Dave. We're talking about the science of heart disease this week. And uh, in a second, we'll be talking to Dr Anthony Mather from Barts and the London down in London. And he's investigating whether stem cells can actually do any good to repair hearts that have been damaged by heart attacks. If you have any questions for us about that, the phone number's coming up shortly, uh, because we also have a teaser running this week, which is, Dave... How many times will your heart beat in the average human lifetime? Now, Norman Osler is uh, doing really well. Treasure in Stebbings, bit low. Connor in Tillingham, really, really good. Negan in London, a little bit low again. Marcus in Cambridge, tiny bit low. Paul in Lovestoff, pretty good. And joining us now is Anthony Mather, who's from Barts in London. Hello, Anthony. Oh, hi there. Good evening, everyone. Now, we've heard from Neil already what a heart attack actually is and that it leads inevitably to the irreversible destruction of the tissue that makes up the heart. But now we're asking, can we actually do anything to put that right again? And so obviously stem cells enter the frame here. How are you trying to investigate this? Um, well, we're starting with a, what I'd call a very simple approach and uh, hopefully relatively um, obvious one. We think that um, the adult bone marrow has actually got cells in it that might well have the potential to repair damaged organs, and that's due to some um, interesting work over the last five to ten years. Why should uh, it be the bone marrow? Well, basically what's happened is that um, all our textbooks talk about the fact that you're born with as many heart cells as you die with. In fact, you can only die with fewer heart cells. That is, that the heart can't regenerate itself as opposed to the liver, which you can lose a substantial amount of, and it will actually regrow back again. Um, and what's changed about that is some recent exciting evidence to suggest that actually the heart might have cells that can regenerate. Um, and the question has arisen as to where these cells could come from. Clearly, with modern diseases, um, the ones that Neil's been telling you about, um, the system that can repair uh, or regenerate the heart is clearly not up to dealing with uh, what happens with a heart attack. Um, but the well, presumably, when, when you've got a heart attack and you've got quite serious, devastating damage to a, 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 re a region of the heart, any cells that are in there that could have stem cell-like properties and could repair that area will have themselves been destroyed. Well, indeed, but um, there's thoughts that there are little niches or collections of stem cells tucked away around the heart that are able to grow in the surrounding areas, but clearly, obviously, uh, no means enough of them. Um, and so some other evidence that's come to light suggests that actually the bone marrow might be producing a sort of body's police mechanism which goes around looking for damage that occurs on a daily basis. Every time you knock your arm, you're going to lose a few cells here and there, but the system from the bone marrow might well be replacing those few cells that get lost, but clearly not a large amount of cells that get damaged or lost in a heart attack. So how would you aim to, to manage a heart attack with these stem cells? Um, well, the way we're taking this forward is that our first study, which has recruited about 70 patients now, is dealing with patients who have heart failure. So they've had a big heart attack or several heart attacks at some time in their lives. Their heart's damaged, it no longer works as a pump, and they've got this nasty condition where they get very breathless, poor quality of life, get tired very easily, get fluid collecting on their lungs. So what we're aiming to do, or what we have done in the 70 patients so far, is taken... Uh, a sample of their bone marrow, processed it to get out what we think are the clever cells and injected those back into the hearts in an attempt to see if they'll actually improve. When you say, sorry to interrupt you, Anthony, but when you say injected them into the heart, do you mean that you would put them into the muscle that's been damaged or would you just put them into the blood vessel? Um, both, in that um, the 
the work that's out there at the moment in man suggests that if you put it directly into the blood vessels around the heart or directly into the heart muscle itself, it has an effect. So our study is actually testing which mechanism or which route of injection is better. Do you actually know how they're working, these cells? Has anyone managed to do any studies where you can follow them to see where they go, what they turn into, and um, what changes they induce to happen in the bits of the heart that, that you think they're affecting? Well, that's a, a very interesting question. Um, the great debate now amongst the scientists that are doing this work is, is mechanism. There are at least five different mechanisms by which these cells might be benefiting that have been shown in the animal models. The problem is with the, the animal experiments, they've shown up to a 40% improvement in heart function um, and have suggested any one of those five mechanisms or combination of them. In man, that's obviously very difficult to demonstrate mechanism because unfortunately, well, fortunately, actually, you don't have the same access to what happens to the cells and also, therefore, you don't know for sure how many cells actually stay in the heart and do some good. Does it actually have a clinically beneficial effect in the sense, do you get people who couldn't climb stairs or make the bed before and after this procedure, they find they're a lot better off? Um, well, the answer to that has to be yes. The problem with this field, though, is that it's uh, dominated by lots of small studies that aren't the gold standard, the randomised controlled trial. So our objective is to try and produce randomised controlled trials so our, patient can, our patients can make their own minds up. So because it's a blinded study, so we don't know whether they're getting cells or placebo, we don't know what our patients have, have got. But to date, approximately half our patients seem to have got better and half not, suggesting that something is going on. But it's not until we come to the end of the study and can unblind it that we'll know for sure exactly what's happened. Do you have any feeling for how long the beneficial effect might last for? Because obviously some therapies... They seem to produce a, a very devastating and Im massive improvement to start with. People are very, very happy. And then when you follow people up for longer, the effect seems to go away again. And is there a worry that could happen here? Well, our study is looking at patients at one year and at six months. So the effects I just told you about are holding out uh, to one year. Uh, beyond that, it's such a new area, we've got no way of predicting what will happen other than to say if we can find a route or a mechanism of administering these cells and taking these cells out of people that's pretty straightforward then we might well be able to re-administer cells um, in an effort to either get more improvement or to restore any improvement that started to sort of decline for whatever reason. And I suppose another major benefit is that because the cells are coming from the patients themselves, there are no additional risks from things like diseases or rejection because it's for, not, not foreign tissue. Um, there are certainly risks associated with this, but as you rightly say, it avoids all the issues about uh, transplanting across species and transplanting across uh, human individuals, leading to rejection and the possible transmission of, uh, of illness. Anthony, thank you very much for joining us. That's quite all right. That's Anthony Mather, who's from Barts and the London, talking about a new stem cell trial which is being used to test in people who have had heart attacks whether or not you can improve the function of their heart. We're talking this week on The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Dave, about the science of heart disease and what medicine can do about it. We're joined in the studio by Neil Campbell. Got a couple of questions for you, Neil. Um, we've got a question from Tony in Essex who says, can you tell me what atrial fibrillation is, please? So I was talking earlier um, that the heart's rhythm is regulated very clearly by a metronome. Some people can develop a chaotic rhythm of that metronome whereby the top part of the heart become, can become very chaotic and the heartbeat becomes irregular. And, and that's, So when you say regular, it's, it, the heart's beating at totally the wrong rate? The rate may be slow, the rate may be fast, 
or it may be normal, but instead of beating regularly like a drum, the heart can jump all over the place. Sometimes patients may have atrial fibrillation or an irregular heart rate and be entirely unaware of that, or sometimes they may have symptoms such as being aware of an abnormal heart rate. Had a call from Jean and also from Ellie who say, why is it in some people who've had some form of heart surgery they have to take antibiotics when they have dental surgery afterwards? Why should they need that? There are some people who have heart surgery who don't only have bypass operations, which we were talking about a little bit earlier. They also have um, a valve replacement. So, for example, if someone has a very leaky valve or if someone has a very tight, narrowed valve, they may need a heart valve operation where either an animal valve or a special metal valve is put inside the body. If someone has a dental procedure, what we know is that the bugs from the mouth can get spread around the body and those bugs can seed onto the heart valve. So antibiotics are given at the time of the dental procedure in people with, um, who have had heart valve surgery to prevent that seeding occurring. Thanks, Neil. It's The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Dave. We've got a teaser running this week all about our subject of the heart, which is, Dave? How many times is your heart likely to beat in your lifetime? Uh, we've had a couple more answers um, from Tim Gennaro, um, who's a bit high, somewhat high, and Anne in Downer Market, who's given two answers, one for the UK and one for Africa, both of which seem a bit low, though. It's interesting how she thinks there's a geographical difference. Perhaps you could let us know, Anne, why there might be a difference. Laying the facts bare, the Naked Scientists. It's the Naked Scientists with Dr Chris and Dr Dave, and we're talking with Neil Campbell, who is a cardiac expert from the London Chest Hospital down in London. We've heard this week already about how blood vessels respond to different drugs. We've heard what heart attacks and cardiac arrests are, and we've also heard now from Anthony Mather about how stem cells can help to sort out hearts that have been damaged by heart attacks. I've got some emails coming in, Neil, if you wouldn't mind having a look at some of these. This one is actually from Decker, who says, Hi, Chris, how are you? I'm a postdoc, actually, at the University of California in Berkeley, over in the States. Mm -hmm. Um, The Naked Scientist is my favourite programme. I've got a question about cholesterol. I know that cholesterol can be synthesised, in other words, made in our body, and it also comes from the food we eat. So my question is, do we really need extra cholesterol from food, or does our body produce enough already? Well, Chris, there's a lot that's written about cholesterol, and a lot of people think of cholesterol as being the bad guy. But actually, cholesterol does quite a lot of good in our bodies. It's responsible for making up part of the components in hormones, such as testosterone or estrogen. It's also responsible for helping absorb other fats, and it's also responsible for helping make the linings of the cells, the cell membranes. What we know is that if someone completely removes all cholesterol from their diet, then the body will be able to synthesise more cholesterol. However, diet only makes one proportion of the cholesterol that we take. And there are particular families, as we've already mentioned earlier, people who have very high cholesterol levels where the cholesterol thermostat is impaired. And those people often need to go on special drugs to try and reduce their cholesterol levels. So in other words, if you eat lots of fat in your diet, you will end up with a high cholesterol level because the cholesterol is used to pick up the fat from the intestine and then ends up in the blood. Mm -hmm. If you cut out cholesterol from the diet, it makes virtually no difference to the total cholesterol in the blood because you'll just make more. Reducing your cholesterol from your diet will have some effect on your total cholesterol levels, which is why people who have very high cholesterol levels, we advise them to decrease the amount of cholesterol in their diet. But diet only has a small proportion to your total body cholesterol levels. This is a question that's come in. Someone says um, they had a quadruple bypass following three minor heart attacks. 
This lady says, is her heart now damaged? She was told by um, an expert that it could be. Um, but also, how long does a bypass last? Not everyone who has a heart attack necessarily has a large amount of heart muscle damage. So if someone has had three heart attacks, they may each have been very small heart attacks and the amount of damage may have been small. But any one of those heart attacks may have been quite large. So it's very difficult to know just from hearing that someone has had three heart attacks how much heart muscle damage has occurred. In terms of how long heart bypass operations can last for, I have treated patients who have had heart bypass operations 20 years ago and they are feeling very well and have no symptoms. Sometimes they last less long than that. But essentially, how long does a heart bypass operation last? How long is a piece of string? Now, Janet Goody sent this in from Shelf and Essex actually last year to us, and I kept it because I knew you were coming. And she said, is it possible to have a heart attack in your sleep, which is brought on by a nightmare? Could you die in your sleep for this reason? People do have heart attacks in their sleep. Um, if someone does have a heart attack in their sleep, it's very difficult to know whether it was a nightmare that brought it on or not. The times which are commonest where heart attacks occur are often in the early morning when the heart rate increases and the heart rate always increases early in the morning to try and wake us up. So generally people have less heart attacks at night than they do during the day. Now I've got a quick question here which was sent to us by uh, phone this week. Hi, this is Soren Mavrogenis. I'm calling from Copenhagen, Denmark. I have a physiotherapy clinic in Copenhagen. What I was wondering is that I've heard from some of my patients that you can actually use essential fatty acids on uh, children to improve their learning and concentration abilities. I haven't been able to find anything on this. I was wondering if maybe you could help me. Is this true? Should I give my kid at three years old omega-6 or omega-3 fatty acid? By the way, thank you for an excellent show. We listen in every week. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you very much, Soren. Well, that question was obviously a little bit more to do with brain power, but it's all about fats, and this show is very much about fats and, and cholesterol and things in the bloodstream. Well, fatty acids, which come from fish oil, and these are called essential fatty acids, omega-3 fatty acids, they're very important, and there's now evidence showing that they can boost brain power, so they are a good thing to get, to get into your body. A dose of oily fish a couple of times a week does have a beneficial effect to your brain power. It can also boost your ability to see, and we know that children given fatty acids, given these kind of oily fish fatty acids from a young age may actually have inc imp increased learning ability and say increased reading age for example so at the moment people are trying to do big long trials of giving people placebos all these oily fish things to see if it makes a difference but the answer is at the moment we know that it can have a beneficial effect on heart disease as well there was a study in japan this week looking at 18,600 people that showed that if they were hypercholesterolemia, they had high cholesterol and they were given some oily fish uh, or some fish oils, then their rates of having non-fatal heart problems actually came down. So if I was to say, go and eat some oily fish every week, then I'd probably be giving you very good advice. Now Dave, who's won our teaser this week, which was how many times has your heart beat in a lifetime? Well, we reckon you're beating about 70 times a minute, um, 60 minutes in an hour, the 24 hours in a day and 365 days in a year. And we reckon people live for about 80 years, which comes out at about 2,900,000,000 beats in a lifetime. Um, we've had loads of answers from Pete, Brian, Phyllis, Harold, Mark, Roger, Ron, Graham, Marcus, Tony, Michael, Don, Janet, Alastair, Pauline and Tim Gennaro has got it right the second time round. But our winner this week is Tony in Westcliffe. Thank you very much, Tony. Now, Anne, who had that answer saying there will be a different level between Africa and 
here, she was actually rather the ball because she said, of course, in Africa, you'd have a lower life expectancy, which is why she gave a different number. But thank you, Anne, for having a go at our teaser this week. Well, that's it for this week, and thank you very much to Neil Campbell and Anthony Mather, who spoke about heart disease and cardiac stem cell therapies, and also to Brian Callingham, who showed us how arteries respond to drugs, and also to our wonderful production team, Petro, Sabina and Ben. I'm actually going to take a break for a bit, so I'll be leaving you in the hands of Dr. Kat, Dr. Helen and Dr. Dave for the next few weeks, so please do drop them a line with a little bit of encouragement. Where am I going? Well, I'm off to Australia, and so if you are listening to us in Australia, I should be joining Dr. Carl on Triple J, that's on Thursday the 12th of April, so do phone in and say hi to me if you listen to Triple J. In the meantime, give the Nature Podcast a listen, that's at nature.com forward slash nature forward slash podcast for more science news, and do take a look at our forum, which is on the web at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum for what we think is the best science discussion in town. Thank you for listening, and see you soon. Goodbye! Goodbye!